everyone. Welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Elisa von Jürgen Forgi, and I am here with my co-host, Irene Victoria Massimino, and our guest co-host, Luciana Minassian, an Argentine lawyer and assistant professor at the University of Buenos Aires Law School. Irena is going to introduce her a little later on in the podcast, more formally, but I just want to say here that we are really delighted, Luciana, to have you on our program and excited for today's program. Okay. Hello, Elisa. Hello, Irene. Thank you for so much for inviting me. It's like an honor to have you, to listen to you again. It's been a while since we met in Yerevan, but uh, we are, I know we are still like working together and helping each other with whatever we can in our genocidal issues. Yes. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh, thank you so much for being here. That's great. We're excited. And I'm sure we'll have you many times again afterwards as well. So, um, Okay, I forgot to mention that our technical producer is Rafi Zarzatian. He's who makes sure that our podcast has music and can, in fact, be published. We are available at the Iraqproject.org. So you can find, for example, all of the news items mentioned on our program at our website, Iraqproject.org. And you can also find us on Patreon, Spotify, and iTunes. All righty. So today we have some news. Uh, just some updates on some of the places in the world that we are following. Um, we're going to make this portion short because we have a lot to discuss with Luciana today. So, Irena, do you want to start with the news? Sure. Hello, everyone. Hello, Luciana. Welcome. I must say that Luciana is not only a colleague, she's a friend. Mm. <laughs> so it's yes, wonderful to friends. have you here. We're friends. We're friends. We're friends yes. in this fight against genocide and we're friends in life as well. So <laughs> yes, thank exactly. You. It's wonderful <laughs> to be here with the both of you. So I'll just quickly start on two important news that are not related to the topics we'll cover today, but that are still of important interest to the work we do in the Iraq project. Um, one is a, a release of an important news by Amnesty International at the end of this past March uh, about Boko Haram. Uh, the headline is Nigeria Boko Haram brutali brutality against women and girls needs urgent response, according to a new research done by the organization. I will just briefly read what is relevant to the article. Uh, and I will, of course, remind our listeners that Boko Haram is an illegal armed group in North, uh, acting in northeastern uh, Nigeria since 2014 that has been committed atrocities harming mainly the civilian population. Um, according to an UNHCR report, the conflict in the region has caused over two, 27 deaths. More than 7 million people have been affected by the conflict. Uh, around 2.5 million people have been displaced, of which more than 1.7 million have not yet been able to return home. And adding now a yet unknown number of victims of sexual violence, which I will refer in a minute. This same UNHCR report says that at least 2,000 women and girls have been kidnapped by the terrorist group, some of them forced to marry the members of Boko Haram or subject to sexual slavery. It's also important to remember that in 2015, Boko Haram actually 
um, uh, uh, identified with ISIS, uh, the Islamic State of uh, uh, Levante and Syria, of Iraq and Syria, ISIL or ISIS. So the, this news uh, is important as it states that Boko Haram fighters have targeted women and girls with rape and other sexual violence, something that is quite common in war crimes, crimes against humanity, and of course genocide using women and girls as a, as a weapon, as a tool in, in a conflict. Um, in February and March 2021, Amnesty International interviewed 22 people in a cluster of villagers in northern Borno state that Boko Haram has repeatedly attacked since late 2019. During violent riots, Boko Haram fighters killed people trying to flee and looted livestock, money, and other values. Amnesty International uh, Nigeria's director, Osai Ojigo, says that as Boko Haram continues the relentless cycle of killings, abductions, and lootings, they're also subjecting women and girls to rape and other sexual violence during their attack. These atrocities are war crimes. Of course, uh, Amnesty International is calling for the intervention of the International Criminal Court, asking to immediately open a full investigation into these atrocities committed by all sides, actually, not only Boko Haram, and of those, of course, who are who need to be held responsible and who are responsible, including these crimes against the women and girls. So anyway, this is something that we, we tend to see usually in conflict areas. And the other news that I want to say is the news that you can find, of course, like Elisa said, in our website. Uh, we'll post it there. Um, it's um, on the Guardian newspaper, the British newspaper, and it's the Commons to Vote on Declaration of Genocide in Jinyang Province in China. This is very interesting. A previous, in a previous podcast, we did mention the report that was done by at least 20 experts on genocide, stating that China is committing genocide according to the Genocide Convention against the Uyghur Muslims. And in this particular case, the MPs of the House of Commons will vote on 22nd of April to back the all-party motion in a declaration of intent against China for its treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. Um, this motion includes and reads part of this motion uh, organized by a number of, of, of activists it reads, this house believes the Uyghurs and other ethnic and religious minorities in the Jinyang region are suffering crimes against humanity and genocide. So we hope, I mean, this is somehow in this awful context of genocide being committed all over the world and other international crimes, this is uh, quite a good news that uh, one of these countries is moving forward to the actual internal recognition of the genocide. So we'll follow up. Uh, this, is, this will happen in, in a few days from now, but we'll follow up on this for sure. So, okay, back to you, Elisa, then. Let's see what you, you brought us. Great. Thank you so much, Irena. Um, I'm just going to uh, briefly state the two news articles that we'll be talking about today, one in particular. Um, two really, we're rarely shocked, I think, in this field, but two shocking bits of news that have come out this week about that, that deal with sort of representation, representation of war, representation of genocide. One is the news uh, that um, that an Irish artist named Matt Lowry was colorizing portraits of Cambodian prisoners who were tortured, starved, 
beaten and killed at the infamous Tool Slang S21 prison during the Khmer Rouge genocide from 1975 to 1979 in Cambodia. Um, and in some cases uh, of the photos that he was colorizing, he also doctored the images to put smiles on the faces of these condemned people. Um, he told Vice, the international news media outlet Vice, that he did this to, and his quote is, to humanize the tragedy. Um, so that's how he explains what he did. But survivors were terribly upset when this news hit. And as one survivor, Thierry Seng, said, the colors do not add humanity to these faces. Their humanity is already captured and expressed in their haunting eyes, their listless resignation, and their defiant looks. Survivors have reported since hearing about and seeing these doctored photos um, that they have not been able to sleep and it has been a form of re-traumatization. Um, and they are demanding an apology. There's actually been a change.org petition going around that we will put up on our website that folks can sign, demanding an apology from, uh, from the artist. So that's one thing we can discuss today, this issue of representation um, and how to do it and how not to do it in the wake of genocide. Even more shockingly, the news hit this week um, on the same day, actually, that Azerbaijan has inaugurated a military trophy park in the center of the capital city, Baku. Um, images began to circulate on Monday of Ilham Aliyev himself, the president of Azerbaijan, walking between two walls of 40 helmets from Armenian soldiers killed in the recent war in Nagorno-Karabakh, the second Artsakh war. Um, and in addition to that, photos circulated of Armenian wax figures, of wax figures of Armenian soldiers depicted in various positions, including uh, positions of detention and positions suggesting that they were in the process of dying or in fact, already dead. So this military trophy park, which also includes, you know, burnt out trucks from the war and other military installments from the war, um, is also kind of like a zoo of genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity that Azerbaijanis can visit uh, to to view and mock and and whatever um, Armenian soldiers wax figures of Armenian soldiers. So I'm hoping we will discuss that today. Armenia's human rights defender Armen Tatoyan stated that the trophy park attests to Azerbaijan's ongoing. This is his quote: ongoing genocidal policy and state-supported Armenophobia. And uh, on France 24, a historian named Mer Barsegian uh, stated that this is true fascism. The park recalls evidence of Hitler's barbarism that is exhibited in museums around the world. We also tweeted about this, the Iraq Project, 
also tweeted about this condemning it um, as celebrating war crimes and exhibiting a genocidal mentality. This is yeah, appalling news. Uh, I was surprised both by the Cambodian situation and now later uh, immediately this this Aliyev photos parading himself in the between the helmets. Um, so I want to briefly introduce Luciana, although she doesn't want to be introduced, uh, our humble friend here. Um, but we mentioned she's a lawyer from Argentina. She teaches at the University of Buenos Aires, human rights, international public law legal aspects of the Armenian genocide and Holocaust genocide and anti-discrimination. But I think what's more important about Luciana is not her being a professor, but is being a true activist in the Armenian diaspora. Uh, in the capacity of an activist, uh, Luciana is part of many organizations. I won't name them all, so she doesn't get mad at me <laughs> afterwards. But um, she's helped a lot um, uh, many times uh, with the with the Western diaspora, of course. She's traveled. She will tell us a bit uh, more about her travels, especially to Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And uh, recently, Armen um, Luciana, uh, who is part of the Argentine Armenian Lawyers Association, an organization she actually set putting up together, has started to work a lot after the most recent conflict in the region uh, last year in 2020. So um, that's it, that's it. Luciana, don't worry, no more introductions about you. <laughs> so, but you can tell us if you want a little bit about, about more about your work. Thank you so much. Well, I believe like uh, being an assistant to professors in, at law school, that is like the, the, the back door to starting this path of uh, I don't know, wars, crimes against humanity, genocidal issues, and you never know where you end up engaged with. Um, probably that's that's the, the path that, I, that I've been walking all these years, during at least five or six years. Um, it's complicated because uh, you, you are surrounded by academics, and personally, I like reading a lot, but I cannot call myself an academic because uh, I use the tools that academics are bringing and they are like 24-7 on their text and studying and writing down everything. And I'm always like, okay, you get this, this is new, bring me this text, bring me this. Like I'm like the backstage where you, <laughs> they can use in order to bring to the light whatever they are creating. And traveling to Armenia also opened many doors because uh, it's not very possible to meet a lot of people, professors, scholars, academics, or whatever you want in Argentina, and less to be engaged uh, in political issues regarding Armenia, regarding Turkey, uh, whatever uh, we are engaged with. So that is that is the reason why being a, an assistant professor it, it's a way to to uh, be welcomed somewhere else uh, in motherland. I'm talking about motherland, uh, and and then you start a totally different uh, path. You start doing something totally different from 
what you were invited to do in Buenos Aires. Um, that is uh, linked to the situation, for example, of going to a constitutional court workshop, uh, for instance, during uh, uh, 2016, and ending up in Artsakh because it was December and we were commemorating the December 9th, the convention against uh, genocide. Yes. And so I ended up going with the uh, Artsakh Ombudsman, the human rights defender, but this time of Artsakh, uh, or Nagorno-Karabakh, as you want to call. Uh, and we went to commemorate uh, the date to Talish, to the place where the four-day April war during 2016 had taken place. Uh, so I was expecting a place like, I don't know, maybe an office. It, it, everything is like, you, you never imagine what where you are heading uh, with mm. these situations. So it's true. I was... Mm -hmm. It was, I was in Yerevan, it was December, it was winter, it was cold, and I was invited to do this, and I didn't even think about it, I just got into the car, they just brought me an English speaker driver, because mm -hmm. the Eastern Armenian and the Western Armenian language has so many differences, that for example, if I wanted to go to the restroom, uh, and I was speaking in the West, the Western way, the, the way that I was told in Argentina, that he would not understand me and I could not go wow. to a restroom. For so they even took me with the English speaker driver. And you for were, uh, uh, Luciana, you were, t it was just you? Who, who did you go with in this in this trip, besides the I ombudsman? I just went alone. I just went alone. Wow. The Armenian the Assembly, or the, there is a representative in Yerevan and we were uh, ending our, I don't know, Three days uh, workshop, maybe three days workshop at the at the constitutional court, and I was invited to go and and meet the the Artsakh uh, ombudsman in Artsakh. He was he was already there, and it was a, a way to to make a press statement, to make a press release, uh, mm -hmm. explaining the report on the regarding the violations on human rights during the four days April war. Uh, where civilians were also attacked, not only uh, soldiers, and even though there were like three or four civilians, because Talish is such a t tiny place uh, in Artsakh, but again, there were old people and they were stopped and here was cut and uh, it was nothing uh, nice to see. Um, the way the the Azeri soldiers, the Azerbaijan, the Azerbaijan military men behave is always, it's always been the same. Then we have the, we have the president, the Safarov case where mm -hmm. uh, Armenian soldier was in his sleep during a training and she was beheaded by the Azeri soldier. Uh, and they are not uh, behaving in a different manner, even though uh, the eyes of the world, they, they may be looking at maybe this time during the Artsakh War uh, 2020, uh, the eyes of the of the world were looking at this because we had BBC reporters were allowed to be on the Armenian side. They were mm, not true. allowed to on be. The... Uh, Azerbaijan did not uh, take reporters, at least in first place. They only displayed uh, a, a kind of uh, fake 
conference during one day, I recall, because I saw it on a tweet, and they put like 20, 30 cameras, and they were trying to make some sort of statement, the press release, I, I recall that. But the, the truth is that reporters themse themselves were saying, okay, we are not allowed uh, by Azerbaijan to, to report about this war, but Armenia is taking us, and they are bringing us to, to Artsakh. Um, so okay, going to the to to Artsakh during 2016, it was it was mm -hmm. strange. Uh, I was I recall I was with my phone all the time, and I trying to catch places, and they were saying the ombudsman was saying to me, Luciana, please do not uh, stream live uh, whatever you are recording because you are the, uh, mm -hmm. you are uh, informing uh, about places or something that. Mm. They do not need to know for for military security reasons. Please don't mm -hmm. be live uh, and don't post this and don't do this. Like we really had to take care. We had to be aware of what we were doing. Uh, it, I was not a tourist in yes. Artsakh. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, by any sense, I was not a tourist there, and we were just. I was just for one day and just to to. Uh, go with him and, and uh, be with him for this uh, mission of uh, explaining during his press statement all, uh, all about these violations, which are related. Whenever you, you were reading and you were, say, you were saying it was a genocidal continuation, uh, yes, okay, we, I think we, we should agree with that because. In a sense, it is. When we were following the developments of the latest war, we felt like it was a continuation of the, the by the way they behave with our soldiers and our civilians and our places, and the way they still use this double uh, level of communication because um, during the genocide, uh, 105, six years ago, I'm referring to mm -hmm. the Armenian genocide, we had two levels of communication, one for the government, uh, uh, which they were receiving this uh, telegram that the, the post office that was uh, head, um, the head of the post office was uh, Talat Pasha. He, mm -hmm. do I call it post office? How do I call it? Uh, to, to know that they were online every day because um, he was sending telegrams all, all the yeah, time. Yeah, like wiring, right? I don't know in English what would be the word in English, Ali. Like when you wire, like... Yeah, yes, when you yes. wire, exactly. When you wire, wire communications at that time, right? Yeah, email, what would it be called, right? Um, yeah, probably like telegram or something. The telegram office. The telegram. Or, yeah, it's yeah. telegram office. Yeah. And I'm always speaking about this double message because, in a sense, it's, it's still Which, sorry to interrupt. It's still going on. The German embassy was very aware of because it was receiving also at the time of the 1950 genocide, Armenian genocide. The German office was receiving these wires as well. I just, you know, thinking, but I don't know how to call them exactly. But yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. the, the the tricky way they communicated. 105, six years ago, uh, and explained, for example, to the government that they were going to deportate and confiscate uh, the goods of the people, and they were they were going to exterminate the people. It was on one side what the government received on the 35 provinces of the Ottoman Empire, and then the people 
the ones who were to be deported, got another total different message saying, okay, uh, we are relocating you for security reasons. Those are security measures. You are going to be next to the desert. Then you will be back to your own places. You just close your stores, your houses, do this, do that. Leave your account number uh, to some of your re uh, relative and better if he's, I don't know, living a road and everything will be restored back to you when you go there okay we are not receiving the same kind of messages this time but they keep lying and lying and lying and whatever they for example in they attacked us in in a way and then they, they accused the armenians of attacking them in the way they actually made the attack it's always a uh, that's why I was speaking about this double level of communication. Mm -hmm. They are basing the, the, their strategies on lies every time. And first it was the Turks. Now they were the, the Azerbaijan, the Azerbaijanis, Azeris, I don't know how you would like me to call them, uh, with the help of the Turkey state and using all these mercenaries that mm. uh, I think I refuse to believe that we were attacked by mercenaries, by, but when we were seeing the development and everything was kind of checked in a way, we were mm -hmm. seeing that mercenaries were actually being brought, they were brought to some path between Syria and first Turkey and they were, they were crossed to the war, to the place where the war was taking mm -hmm. place. And they were promising. They they, they promised them uh, a payment about thousand and five hundred dollars, or maybe two thousand dollars. But then they said, okay, but you have to prove that you killed the Armenian. So we have these videos that they are proving that uh, they have to prove they, that they had a, a corpse or maybe a head, and. It's a regular uh, way to to behave for them, and it's, I don't see any normal. I don't see humanity in bringing a head mm -hmm. and saying, "Okay, pay for me." And even the mercenaries were at risk because I I read. I cannot say okay, this is for sure, but I read that the mercenaries were uh, were wounded or were hurt in a way and there were no facilities, they mm. may have been left uh, on the for road. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. for and sure. that is similar to uh, the genocidal behavior of a hundred years ago, because they used this uh, special organization for the deportation of Armenia. But when they started on April 24, they went uh, and took uh, about 200, 300 Armenian intellectuals in order to to have the people who could do something or arrange something mm -hmm. to avoid deportations. And there is this Krikorso Graf who was taken to a, a supposed uh, trial inside uh, a province, I, I think it was the Arbekir, uh, a fake uh, argument about okay you're going to be detained here he will remain at mm -hmm. the prison and i don't know i guess it was ankara but he was supposed to be sent to the Abekir and in the in the middle of the road he was uh, taken by the ones who were driving him 
who are part of the special organization. And they just broke his school with a, with a stone or something. She was dead. And then it was stated that they, they didn't even want to keep the, like the people who joined the, who were uh, the part of the special organization for, because for Ember or maybe for Jemal, I don't recall exactly, I think it was for Ember, they were like rats, they were like dogs. Mm. The, the people mm -hmm. that they used, uh, the round element, the round Muslim people, were like, okay, the job was done, now kill them as well. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. why I the, the the behaviors i think they are not changed they have not changed mm -hmm. uh, they are mm -hmm. still using the same tools and they are behaving how can we expect to them to return our civilians to return our prisoner of yeah. prisoners of war if they kill their own people or the ones that help them uh, the ones they the use work. yeah they're using yes. these people to commit the crimes yes. yeah and maybe that is the way if you if you get these uh, these little details that you get from some, something that happened uh, 100 years ago but you see the same patterns of behavior mm -hmm. and you say okay yes I I don't I may not dare calling it genocidal at first but then you start seeing all, all these patterns that they are all alike it's so yeah. true I think it's a very important point. Do you know there's a emerging literature? I'm sure you guys are aware of it, but it interests me a great deal on um, on uh, sort of this discourse, this genocidal discourse that has sustained itself through many regimes within Turkey, and is now becoming part of Turkish foreign policy and being sort of um, you know exported to Libya, Syria, now Azerbaijan. Um, and the ways in which Turkey itself was, when it was founded as an independent state in 1923, um, as the Republic of Turkey, sort of the inheritor of mm -hmm. the Ottoman Empire, the way the state sort of codified and institutionalized genocidal ideology uh, in, underneath sort of a modernization nation-state program. Um, and we've seen how that worked for the Kurds, right, who often say the Armenians were breakfast and we are lunch, <laughs> meaning, mm -hmm. right, that what happened to the yeah. Armenians, which many Kurds participated in as perpetrators, yeah. right, mm -hmm. eventually exactly. the same state turned on them. And we see those sort of that protracted struggle. And and Turkey has in the in the process of kind of institutionalizing uh, this genocidal discourse um, has also developed, I think, one of the most sophisticated forms of genocidal denial, genocide denial out there. And that seems to be something that Turkey has really bequeathed on Ilham Aliyev in Azerbaijan. Because, Luciana, as you're saying, um, it's so frustrating to read statements that come out of Azerbaijan, to watch how many human rights organizations seem to be misled, willingly misled by Azerbaijan, to listen to Azerbaijanis accuse Armenians of doing what Azerbaijanis have done, where there's no evidence that Armenians have done it, um, to hear the way these crazy, and I hate to sound so, um, 
because I'm sort of editorial about this, but these really crazy historical interpretations where Armenians are not in fact Armenians, but they're sort of fake Azerbaijanis, uh, because, right? Because they all mm -hmm. trace themselves back to sort of these this Albanian group, this ancient Albanian group, um, so that in fact all of territorial Armenia mm -hmm. is is really territorial Azerbaijan because it was owned by Albanians. I mean, the level at which this denial and this justification and these falsehoods exist and have been developed mm -hmm. is frightening. So I, I know that you've been sort of fighting against this, Luciana, right? And some of your capacities, your professional capacities. Do you want to talk a little bit about what it's like to, to be in that house of mirrors and have to sort of come up with a coherent plan? Yeah, yeah, I think it's crazy. And besides, you you yourself don't know where to start. Uh, and maybe uh, the proper way is to, okay, let's find the history books and see that... Uh, just for my own, for my own, <laughs> I don't know, knowledge. Uh, uh, I need to realize that uh, this Caucasian Albanian situation, whatever they like to call themselves, they were not settled in the region. They even copied the name of the the region. Uh, Azerbaijan was part of the Persian province uh, on the top of the river, and then they put just the same name to the other side, and they named it Azerbaijan. Mm -hmm. So it could be uh, they could make a confusion and just use the bold part of the land as Azerbaijan. Oh so they and, took they took the word Azerbaijan from the Persian from a Persian province. Yes, yeah, um. Persian province territory that mm -hmm. and I think the river is Arax River I, I may be mm -hmm. mistaken no I think that's right but I did my own research because I said okay what are they saying <laughs> what are why are they saying that they were there first and and I did my own research and even I recall being uh, I guess in Lori Valley in Armenia maybe it was Akhbad, one of these monasteries and I still recall taking a picture to some banner they had inside the monastery because they were um, like documenting that books were sent during uh, 11th or 12th century uh, to because there were, the Armenians were settling settling there and they were living there so um, mm -hmm. Lori is almost near Georgia and it's border with Georgia and they were sending material to mm. Nagorno-Karabakh because Armenians were there uh, and so okay I made my own research I, I really wanted to know if what we were speaking about we we, we really had the right to to talk about this, we really had the right to speak about uh, indigenous uh, people, the yeah. Arme mm -hmm. Armenians as indigenous people of Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, but we really are entitled to do so, because it's been like this. So while, while we were there, they were nomads. They were coming and they were doing this copycat mm -hmm. of the name and okay. Uh, even though they lived there, and in a sense we coexisted, I would say I would dare saying that 80% of the population was Armenian, and maybe 20 to 10% of mm -hmm. the population remained uh, from Azeri origins or Caucasian mm -hmm. or 
you the way you would like to call them. I know we have to to set aside the the, the question of the right to self determination. I know it's something different, though it would help so much. Uh, mm -hmm. The conflict, the, the outcome of the conflict, I know it would be a great tool, but uh, okay, it's difficult. Uh, we are always citing, or at least my, my boss keeps citing the Kosovo <laughs> situation uh, right after the war and how they could come up with the, with the state. Uh, but I don't know if we have the, the same opportunity here. It's something that we are still working on. Uh, we don't even know from which continent the the who will lead the the, the issue. Yeah, maybe South America could be a one. We're always thinking, okay, who could not not Argentina because in the case of Argentina we have a conflict with uh, Malvinas slash Falklands, whatever you want to call oh, it. Oh right, it has nothing to do because there's no indigenous yes. people situation. Yeah. There are some differences but still i think argentina could not be a leading could not have a leading role in the self-determination issue uh, maybe uruguay could do it uh, i don't know we could we could speak about other continents but it's something that it's always it's always on the mind of, of everyone who is uh, related with uh, the nagorno garabakh cause because it's important it would be a different way to to preserve the people, first the people, uh, then the territories. Uh, but first the people, because uh, when you go to Artak, you realize, even though I was just for 24 hours, there is a university, there is a parliament. We even mm -hmm. uh, met uh, the, the head of the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He was here in Argentina. Uh, I think they are they are doing a good job there. They are they are they are restoring the way they, that they were living their, their lives before the war. Like they did like in a you know in two minutes people are they are so capable of having a normal situation right after a drama. Resilient, right? Resilient so would be resilient. resilient. Yes, yes, I was watching a video yesterday and it was wow this is amazing people are resilient they are really willing to live there uh, they belong there in a sense they belong mm -hmm. there yeah and these are you're talking just to clarify these are armenians that are living now under sort of russian occupied the russian occupied portions of artsakh that were not given back to or given to azerbaijan um at the end of the war in the fall, right? Yes. yes. What, what we are seeing right these days is mostly uh, any uh, something uh, from Estepanakert, from, mm -hmm. from what was the capital of the region. Um, I don't know if in other towns uh, life is still the same. I don't think it's the same. I think there is a security reasons I don't think there is a coexistence possibility. I think we are really in trouble. And I don't, I myself don't believe that the Russian forces could do a lot about this because I don't trust uh, the, Azeri, the Azeri government. Uh, 
and having this uh, mockery of uh, the museum. Uh, they are paying two Azerbaijani, uh, I don't know how they call it, uh, the, the, the money, uh, they are paying two pesos, mm -hmm. I don't know, dollars or whatever. Uh, just to enter to this museum and thinking about the humiliation of the soldiers that we lost, of the soldiers that are still in the hands of them, if they are still alive, we don't know, and if they were, if they were dead, they are not sending the remains, they are not in compliance with uh, anything that uh, international humanitarian law uh, says. I don't know, this is a drama. This is really actually a drama. I was reading about uh, the released lady, Maral, I don't recall her mm -hmm. last name, uh, from Lebanon, which she happened to escape from Beirut right after uh, last year's event. And she happened to be, okay, let's let's move to a better peaceful place. Okay, she moved to Artsakh. And while she was getting her stuff, because the territory, we were losing the territory and they had to to, to take her belonging or something. She was uh, a, a friend of her, joined her, just going and moving her stuff. And they were kid, kidnapped. Maral mm -hmm. was released, but uh, his friend was uh, is still mm -hmm. under Azerbaijani mm -hmm. uh, authorities control. We don't know whether he's alive or he's dead. He was tortured because they were like rounded up by, I guess it were, there were like eight soldiers, eight Azerbaijani soldiers when they detained them. Mm -hmm. They took them to a prison. Maral said, okay, when I was released like two weeks ago, I guess, uh, I didn't even want to look back because all the torture was in her mind. Uh, and, and she doesn't know anything about his friend. She doesn't oh. know whether the friend is alive or dead. And mm. let's think that we should be thinking about the lives of the 2,000 that we are missing uh, between uh, soldiers, Armenian soldiers, and civilians. And we don't know what what happened to them. Um, that's why one becomes an activist because. There's, there's, the only thing that we can do is like uh, try to make some awareness, try to, to, to raise some yeah. awareness in the world. Uh, not even Armenian, but just as, as any one of us, we are citizens of the world. Yeah. And for instance, I know that tomorrow they will be marching in some places. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, I, I don't think they are doing demonstrations in Argentina. I was speaking to some colleagues, but uh, people feel so frustrated because I don't know whether there's a lot we can do. Um, uh, maybe the best way is to help Armenian authorities by trying to offer a hand in whatever we as lawyers can do. That's why we are uh, engaged with Irene. Uh, and she was mentioning the Armenian, Argentine Armenian Lawyer Association that we are starting here in Argentina. Uh, because right after the war, we were communicating with some colleagues and uh, our friend from Nuremberg, Gurgen Petrosian, 
uh, started telling us, okay, we are we are writing down something. We will be presenting this. Uh, hopefully, the prosecutor will take up our claims, and maybe there's something you can do. And I personally don't believe a lot in demonstrations because I know that there are many other ways that we can be more helpful. Maybe for my friends who are not lawyers or maybe they are not engaged with Armenian authorities. Uh, in a sense, we are like, we have a privilege if we want to, to act. Uh, mm -hmm. Because uh, having, visiting, having visited Armenia for many reasons, diaspora conferences, all the genocidal forums uh, that I joined with you guys, um, constitutional court workshops. Uh, okay, that gave us the experience to know how to uh, interact with uh, Armenian authorities and whether to realize by talking to them, uh, trying to see if they are willing uh, if they want us to help uh, first, uh, if it's good for the state, it's, it's good for the for their policies, uh, and if they say okay or green light, uh, I think uh, working with our colleagues all over the world is a, is a is a good uh, manner. It's a good way to do something. Mm -hmm. uh, Armenia is mostly. Uh, engaged with uh, the European Court. Uh, the Ombudsman of Armenia is uh, always uh, working with uh, their colleagues, their European colleagues. But we have good, uh, we don't have a, I, don't, I wouldn't say we have lobbies, but we are working, diaspora people, yeah, we may call it lobbies. I don't. I, I, when I think of a lobby, I think the, of the Azeri lobby, the Azerbaijani <laughs> lobby. And yeah, in a negative way, right? You think of it as, as negative. Yeah, like it negative. has neg yeah. negative connotations. But we in the diaspora, I don't know if we can call ourselves a lobby, but I don't know. We're mostly helping motherland uh, if they want to with the means we have. Uh, I know in Argentina we may be a little bit weaker because we are less, there is less population, Armenian population, or maybe we don't have the means or the budget. Uh, but I think that uh, joining uh, our colleagues from worldwide is a, is a good way of doing something as well. And, and I think having the advantage of uh, Already understanding the, the, the policies in Armenia, uh, we, we know whether it's going, it's going to be okay if we act, and, or maybe it's better if we stay like, okay, let's stay quiet and see the developments. I don't know, it's, it's, it's complicated. And whatever you think when you are in your own country, it's totally different when you get in Armenia because <laughs> you were so sure of something and you're okay we are going to act this way and then you go to Armenia you met with authorities people colleagues and you're truly thinking the opposite thing like the following day <laughs> you change your mind and okay what happened to me but it's like that because being an in situ being at the, at the place it's it's a uh, 
it changes the way your point of view and the perspective it changes everything. But again, we we can collaborate in the way we we are able to. Certainly, I think you know. I wanted to say a couple of things, Luciana and Elisa. It's um, certainly you know we do believe in activism as well. If not, we wouldn't be able to have this project, right? The Iraq project is about that as well as activism, grassroots, etc. And I think the diaspora has also a great tool. The diaspora is spread all over. Unfortunately, for of course for the wrong reasons, but it's all over the place, and you can lobby with the different governments and see in the good way, of course, uh, lobby, I think, has that negative connotation that we think of, that people use uh, uh, in corrupt governments. But no, I think activism is part of trying to reach whoever is open in each government, wherever you're located, Argentina, the US, France, Uruguay, Brazil, for example, Germany, etc., and trying to get people to help. You know, I was thinking that in this last uh, trilateral agreement, Turkey was given the status of observer of the ceasefire. And when at the same time, Turkey is actually an aggressor in right. the conflict. So mm. we can't really trust these powers. We need some backing up the work, you know, the diaspora does and other people who are not the diaspora and still collaborate. Um, but, you know, people that want to help the Armenian, um, the Armenians in Artsakh as you said, for their survival. I think that the problem with the Armenians is, is their physical survivor, uh, survival and their cultural survivor, because, survival, because um, many places, cultural places representing their identity were completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, I mean, that's part of, you know, this rewriting history that Elisa was mentioning, that you, Luciana, were also mentioning. So I think it's, I mean, it's an exhausting work, maybe, probably, and it's also very negative when one thinks that, you know, Turkey, who is an aggressor, which is an aggressor, is also monitoring the ceasefire and the compliance with the returning of prisoners by Azerbaijan, a full ally of Turkey, is completely hypocritical and, and, and it's like a psychopath behavior, I think, of the global community. So true. So I think what I'm doing now is like an open call we don't have too many listeners but we hope we do but we do give an open call to members of the international community to actually take action and take a stand for what is correct it's not about taking a side and deciding which side is right or wrong it's about taking the only possible side to take which in this case is the protection of armenians in Arsakh. it's not about uh taking a side because they're equal they're not equal Right? They're not. So, and I think, you know, this brings me back, Luciana, if you want to say something about the rapporteur's statement, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Inhuman Treatments, when he said that Armenia also had to return, that both sides of the conflict had to return the prisoners of war. And, hmm. well, let's make it clear Armenia has no prisoners of war. So um, I don't know if you want to say something about this, uh, Luciana, about this this particular also very important statement by a high-rank UN official. Yes, exactly. Uh, what I was telling you before, I think that these are, there are we are misled by the situation because uh, we were going back to the first uh, moments of the war 
and I was always reading news and the news were speaking about uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan as both aggressors mm. and and I didn't agree at all because Armenia was not the aggressor. Armenia was living, the Armenians in Artsakh were living there mm -hmm. peacefully and they were attacked by uh, Azerbaijan plus Turkey plus mercenaries. So uh, from the first time we were not, we were not equal, we were not uh, on the same uh, level. And, and doing this report, okay, it may Doing this report, uh, having someone from United Nations doing this report may even be um, taking in consideration statements of, of, of the OSC means group. Maybe it's just the same because they are always like they are. They are. They may not want to be biased, mm -hmm. but by doing so. They are putting Armenia in a in a place where Armenia and Artsakh they don't they don't deserve to be because uh, we already uh, sent our and I, and we also make sure because we wanted we as lawyers wanted to help uh, by statements uh, wanted to help uh, this situation of the UN special rapporteur. Uh, by stating that Armenia already has no one to give back and that Armenia is the one who is missing 200 prisoner of wars and mm -hmm. civilians because they are not and maybe as we discussed uh, before with Irene they are not we are not uh, only speaking about prisoner of wars because of the issue of the civilians because yes, there civilians. are forced disappearances and we're speaking about forced disappearances Whenever we are talking about civilians who were returning just to take the luggage, to take their belongings and get back to Yerevan or wherever they were supposed to, to live because they no longer had the, the house, the territory, we lost everything. Mm -hmm. uh, we're speaking about uh, forced disappearances. It's not about prisoner, prisoners of war. Forced disappearances. Uh, yes, yes. Yes. And... Um, and maybe the, they are lacking of uh, some balance with their statements because they are they may be confused i don't know <laughs> we are sometimes everybody gets confused if you don't know <laughs> how to deal with these countries for example azerbaijan is always in constant contradiction while they want to present to the world uh, that we are this perfect state the state where you can come and eat dolma, like a regional food, for example, where you can come and see Formula Uno, Formula One. Formula One, yeah. Formula One. Uh, because we have this great, well, it presents to the world in a way, with his lobby, with its lobby, uh, in a magical way. Mm -hmm. Of course, I would like to visit Marco <laughs> if, if I was to be beheaded. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because it's not just like this. It's like live without your head. Come with your head, live without <laughs> <laughs> Really. So, 
It's tricky the way they put into the word. And, and I've been here as well. For example, there have been conferences here, and sometimes we Armenians, uh, whenever we are aware that they are bringing a doctor or they are doing this uh, multi-religious uh, mm -hmm. uh, tolerance conference, for example, in Argentina uh, at the CARI, how do how do we call it? Uh, Cari is the center, this is like the Argentine Center for International Relations. It okay. sort of is an, exactly. a center, it's a private, it's a, a private organization, like an NGO, but it, it's it's formed by former members of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Okay. So it's sort of a yeah. high rank organization. I don't know what it would be, but yes, sort yeah. of that. Yes, yeah, just to explain. So I was sitting there watching this splendid conference and they were speaking about the way they embrace multi-religious uh, and they have tolerance and they embrace the Jews and they do this and they do that and the, the uh, Azerbaijani ambassador Aslanov was sitting there with the lady who came just, just to explain all this and I was like okay this this doesn't make sense it's ridiculous like Five minutes later, they cross the border and they just give, I don't know, kill an Armenian, behead the Armenian, and then they are embracing religions and people, and they are uh, tolerating what? Tolerating what? And they, okay, and then they are uh, referring to this new issue that they are bringing up. It's not new, but they are starting to bring in the Khojalu, Khojali issue. And they are speaking that we Armenians made uh, committed genocide against them, and they are uh, avoiding, voluntarily avoiding, willingly avoiding to say that there was a humanitarian corridor during the Kojalu situation where their own population, the Azerbaijani population, were supposed to go through and save their lives. And right after, they state that Armenians committed genocide, and right after, they place a photo of bones, of bones, like, okay, disintegration happened in 24 hours. We, uh, we Armenians killed yeah. the Azerbaijan people, and right after, here are the bones, okay? Mm -hmm. like, like the bones of Armenians in the Syrian desert from a yes. genocide that happened 100 years ago. Yeah, and since they don't, since they don't let journalists in, they let they don't let journalists in. You were talking no, about this earlier before the program. They just don't let journalists in. There is just absolutely no way they can lie about anything because there's no mm -hmm. way to validate what they're saying independently. Exactly, but they made a mistake when they okay, like you are bringing the dolma, you are bringing Formula One, you are embracing tolerance for all these religions. But right after, you make the mockery by creating this war museum of dead Armenians. And there, yes. then there's your own contradiction. That's where Absolutely. you are. I was just going to mention that. Yeah. On the other hand, That's they make this, and the president himself parades in the middle of the helmets of, of what we, you know, we've mentioned in our tweet, that it was, it's a, it's a, it's a museum of war crimes, and they're embracing that. So it's, it's a total contradiction yet i'm still appalled by the by the international community's position on this i don't I, know if, have they said anything have they i mean it's been on the news of course yes but it's been tweeted and retweeted a million times but yeah what I is mean, yes. what is yeah 
one thing we haven't mentioned is oil <laughs> right resources yeah. um you know i, I was just yeah. thinking about the history I, I did a little research into this history just for a a course i'm teaching on the armenian genocide in the model modern middle east and i wanted to give my students some background on on you know the war in the wars in nagorno-karabakh and um, so I'm no expert on this, but you know there was in July 1918 before Nagorno, before before all of these little states, Georgia, the South Caucasus states, became independent republics, um, and and then were sort of absorbed by the USSR. Um, there was a formation because Armenians have have traditionally and historically always been the majority. There was the formation of an Armenian National Council of Karabakh which um, was uh, asserting its own independence and wanted to become an independent uh, nation state, right, allied with, with independent Armenia. And the British um, instead, the British opposed this idea because they had so much interest in oil in Azerbaijani territory. And they placed an Azeri general in charge of Karabakh until this question of Nagorno-Karabakh would be settled mm -hmm. by a peace treaty, right? Which was the Treaty of Sev, which never came into power. No. Um, and then, of course, at some point, the Russians decided, so the Russians gained control of the region, occupied the region, and decided that Nagorno-Karabakh would become part of Armenia. And then the next day, Stalin intervened and made mm -hmm. sure it became part of Azerbaijan. A lot of this has to do with Turkey, Turkish foreign policy, Turkey, Turkish power in the region, and the Western mm -hmm. interest in oil. And that hasn't changed at all, <laughs> right? Yeah, all of those factors exactly. still exist mm -hmm. now. And so one wonders how much of this international both sides-ism, right? Yes. This, this sort of idiotic quest for balance that, that, that makes high UN officials misstate the facts about who has POWs and who doesn't, right? How much of that is influenced directly by these larger um, resource interests? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been, yes, you're, you're totally right. And when, when you were, uh, before we had, before I was, I started to talk and you were uh, mentioning Boko Haram and then where you were missing, were speaking about ISIS. I was thinking about, for example, Turkey and geopolitics, Turkey mm -hmm. and, two, uh, and the two bases that United States have in inside Turkey. One, mm -hmm. I guess, was for ISIS, just to fight against ISIS. And I think that the second one, if I'm not mistaken, it was a, uh, to fight against Afghanistan, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, the same with um, Azerbaijan. Israel has a, a, a place as well, because yeah. he, uh, Israel needs to be near Iran. Right. Uh, the political <laughs> reasons, uh, oil reasons, they are always going, these reasons are the, are the ones to prevail. And that's why we are in a real weaker condition. Certainly. That's the main reason why we are totally in a... In a and when Stalin divided the way, uh, he divided uh, the territories and Nagorno-Karabakh remained inside Azerbaijan, it was probably because it was better to have this uh, coexistence, non-coexistence, because it was, he knew it was not going to be easy, 
for Muslims and Armenians to live together. So it was better for the sake of the so, 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 uh, Soviet republics to have this kind of uh, mm. division. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's making, it was better to do it this way, besides the British uh, argument, which also was more important that uh, having the Armenians. Uh, but it, in a sense, if we happen to have the self-determination for Artsakh, we would have two republics. Because what yeah. Armenia is always uh, stating is that Artsakh is not Armenia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we are fighting for self-determination, OK, we, want, we really want Artsakh to be another state, not Armenia. It mm -hmm. is populated by Armenians, but it's not the same. So I don't know, the political reasons are always on top of the situation. That's why, for example, uh, I, I don't have hopes on a Biden statement uh, recognizing <laughs> genocide. And whenever the Knesset is meeting inside Israel, just to treat the recognition of our yes. uh forget it. Like, <laughs> I don't have hope. It looks like on a totally different path, yes. the, the recognition and all these reasons, because there are military reasons, geopolitical reasons, power reasons, political reasons, and they prevail on all these topics they prevail. Even Russia was complicated during the Artsakh war, because, for example, Russian planes could not go through Georgia's mm -hmm. uh, air oh. territory. Sure. And because of the occupation. Yeah, yeah. Yes, because of the occupation. The occupation, the occupation. Mm -hmm. the yeah, occupation yeah. of Russia in Georgia's territory, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was hoping that uh, Russia Russia would make an intervention. But just at the end, and with the tripartite ceasefire agreement, I realized that Russia was also like a bystander and was profiting in a way, in a sense, of what was going on. Mm. It was much better mm. to see Armenia and Artsakh defeated. Mm. Uh, it's sad, but I think the outcome was that. It's sad, but... And, and then I realized that there must be so many other important reasons with Russia, which I can't figure out right now. Uh, and those must have been the reasons why Russia did almost nothing because being uh, uh, being part of an agreement is something that not interfering with all this crazy yes. uh, war uh, brought by Azerbaijan and Turkey. It was totally a different thing, and, and it's so it's so shameful. Um, in this case, in particular, Irena, as you were saying, this isn't a matter of two equal sides. Armenia is so much weaker than yeah. Azerbaijan geopolitically and in terms of resource wealth and just size, size of population, size of territory. Um, and historically, because of the genocide, because Armenians were, uh, you know, almost three-fourths of Armenians in the Ottoman Empire were genocided in World War I and still mm -hmm. haven't recovered fully from that. 
Um, but also in Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan is now ruled by a man who's not only a dictator, but seems to be in possession of a genocidal mentality. And that's what we see in this trophy park. And, you know, from what I've seen, this is how Azerbaijanis are trained from an early age on really to view Armenians as a lesser species of humanity. And you could see that um, in those wax figures of Armenians, what's so weird, right? So from an outsider's point of view, Azeris and Armenians don't look that different, right? Do you know, it's like, it's sort of like Israelis and Palestinians, they don't look that different if you're coming from the outside at all, right? But, 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 with these, but these wax figures in this trophy park of Armenians have these weirdly, grotesquely elongated and exaggerated yes. facial features to the point that they reminded me of Nazi anti-Semitic propaganda. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's Absolutely. this kind of imposed hideousness on the figures yes. that really look like anti-Semitic propaganda. So this is I mean, so the international community has to realize that whatever they think about who should own Artsakh or, you know, who is the indigenous group there or who has a moral claim or whatever they decide. Right. About that. One side is a genocidal state. And the other side isn't. And they have to deal with that. So to do both siderism, when you're dealing with one side that's a genocidal state, that's a form of genocide denial. And it's a form of complicity in genocide. And if I were the head of Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International or of one of the UN agencies, I would want to step away from that possible complicity in, in, in this slow-moving, low-level genocide that Azerbaijan seems to be committing against Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. Absolutely. My, my next point was going to be that even we can discuss this in another podcast, Lucina, because we would love to have you anytime. Yes. But it's, you know, the Canadians uh, have written this uh, sort of suggestion on how the responsibility to protect would give um, Artsakh or Armenians in Artsakh the possibility of, of self-determination and created their own state and that's fantastic mm -hmm. I mean to uh, if we can if we can support their independence is great however they will continue they will continue to live next to Artsakh I mean Azerbaijan and they will continue to be threatened by yes. Azerbaijan the identity and their human, their, 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 their physical life, right? So not only their cultural life. So the problem seems to be even beyond whether we recognize or not Artsakh or who belongs yes. to who, or who is an indigenous or something. It's about these people who were maybe 80%, I think, if I'm not mistaken, were displaced during the conflict uh, last um, last uh, fall in the north, spring here in, in Argentina <laughs> in the south. Uh, but yeah. uh, around 80%, right, of the population of Arzakh was displaced. So, I mean, this population is at risk mm -hmm. whether or not they are recognized as an independent state. And Great this point. is exactly what the, what the international community has to have in mind, right? I support, I think I fully support, I'm not an expert on Arzakh, but I think I fully support their their independence beyond whatever argument could be. Mm -hmm. um, the people, event, they did vote for eventually, you know, um, when was it, Luciana, in uh, 19, when was it that they voted to get uh, independence, actually? Was it 91? Was it 1994? I think it was around the 90s, yes. I think it was, but anyway, so they've, they've already said it. 
and that's the right to self-determination, UN Charter, we all know about that. But their existence will continue to be at, under threat. I mean, their cultural and physical existence will continue under threat if the policies of Azerbaijan continues and if the international community does not say anything about this horrific conflict, the horrible crimes, the, the uh, POWs, the civilians, that we don't know where they are. We don't even know if they're alive, actually. We, we, we don't know if they're alive. I mean, they, they, it was enforced disappearance, and it could be enforced disappearance led by, you know, in, in, resulting in death, actually, because we don't know whether these people are are alive, actually. So I, I, I think it's beyond that. But we should still discuss. I mean, I'd love to discuss this self-determination issue eventually, right? Yes. The right of this people. We, we should. But we have yes. to have in mind that that, that you know, these this people will could disappear even if they have their own independent state because these are weak states you know you just said it Elisa and you too Lucian I mean these are weak states there's a small state even Armenia is a very weak state totally it needs important allies and um, unfortunately I don't know whether it's internal problems of what I'm not that aware but we we do, we do need we do, as, as civilians here we do need to support whatever is possible to help these people mm -hmm. yes um, but the only fact that, okay, having uh, an independent state would provide again some advantages. For example, they could yep. have their own representation because absolutely, it's, mm -hmm. to, it's not possible to activate any kind of uh, representation except activism around the world, even mm -hmm. while putting the, their own authorities that, as we are already doing. Uh, that they could have their own representation and make their own claims. And I don't know, it, they could be a little bit safer that having this at least uh, way to show themselves to the world. This is very complicated because yep. it's uh, Armenia uh, as motherland and people from diaspora, which is not little because we are a lot and we are doing a lot of noise and we are we have the help of many of of you uh, who are also willing to raise awareness on the situation and they have to put a lot of money and this comes spontaneously it's like okay they cannot fight this they they don't have diaspora i i was once speaking with their own ambassador the ambassador mm -hmm. of Azerbaijan, and say what why don't we make i made a suggestion why don't we make a, a dialogue committee or something uh, between we the diaspora and you and he looked at me seriously and he said we don't have a diaspora here in Argentina and that was like the end of the thing and I said oh, poor man probably I'm putting him on risk because he has this vertical submission <laughs> he has to, to, to be aware that whatever he's telling me they could be <laughs> at him what you're saying to me right now. Okay, he said yes, we are setting a dialogue committee in Argentina. Okay, <laughs> he's not being called uh, back to Azerbaijan, but also going to prison. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. He never went back to Azerbaijan after that. He just he went somewhere yes. else. <laughs> those are states, those are countries where there are no no uh, guarantees again yeah, yeah. Uh, again 
uh, with the people. I was uh, speaking with some Turks, scholars, professors and academics during the diaspora conference of the last one during uh, 2017. Hmm. And Turkish people who have been left uh, out of the, their own jobs because of the Gulenism situation, so-called uh, Gulen party or something, or they were like mm. uh, linked to the political situation. So, okay, I, I uh, gave up my uh, school uh, position, college position, this, that. Did you give up your position or were you just fired? Okay, Luciana, I was fired. Uh, it was a it was an humiliation as well for them to say that they were sacked of, yeah. their, of their places of the I don't know educational places. Uh, so and and we are very aware that inside Turkey and inside Azerbaijan, uh, people are getting arrested, are being arrested. Uh, it's been almost four or five years exactly in Turkey, and there are no warranties like. You don't know whether when you are going to a prison, uh, prison in Turkey, you don't know whether the person is going to be well treated. Uh, it's going to be tortured. Uh, tortured. Uh, there's going to be a process, a regular process with mm -hmm. all that a process needs to have. You don't know what's going to happen to the to the person who's going to prison. And the same, I, I believe, it's the same for Azerbaijan. I don't think yep. we are speaking about something different. Uh, when we refer to Azerbaijan. So we're not dealing with uh, this uh, state and we, we are allowed to say, okay, we have not the oil, we have not the money of the mm -hmm. refugees, the Europe refugees that Turkey received. We are not with the same budget, but we are on a, on, on the same condition, just to start a conversation, just to start whatever, a dialogue, a, an agreement. We're not on the same condition. We're so much weaker than them. Yeah. Whether the oil, whether the money mm -hmm. of the refugees, whether whatever, whether the, the bases that uh, USA may have or Israel or whatever, we're out of the league right there. We're a, weaker, a weak nation. I don't know, but I think there are so many tools that we are using and, okay, it's going to be uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, it's it's little by little, step by step. Yeah. The, Armenian, the Armenian cause is step by step. Regarding genocide, regarding Artsakh, if we didn't lose the entire territory, hmm. it's still there. And I don't think this is the end of the war. Maybe it's too much to say. I don't know. We don't. I don't know. That, I know that today we don't have enough resources to mm -hmm. start the war. I think we are not on that position. But I don't think this is the end of the war. It may be worse on the Azerbaijani side, but it may even be worse on the Armenian side because mm -hmm. people were truly sad. Many lives. So many lives were. People were, I don't know, like, I, I think like 10,000 soldiers were killed, I guess. It's terrible. I guess. It's so I many. It's huge. Yes. Uh, people were volunteering. Uh, 
from diaspora as well. People were volunteering to go to Rome yes. to fight mm -hmm. it's for, the territory, yeah. for the ancestral territory. They loved the idea of COVID. They don't, they don't care. Even from Argentina, there was a volunteer from Argentina. We are mm -hmm. like yeah. our flight away from the war scene. But uh, it's something that they feel. It's Something probably like, do. you know, remembering the history again, repeating their own ancestral history as victims of the genocide a hundred years ago, maybe. I don't know. Some, probably. Mm -hmm. It could probably be the same. Even though we have uh, at least three programs started in Baku on mm -hmm. the 90s, mm -hmm. because it's, that is not like far away in the year's history. People escaped from Baku, people escaped from, from Sundai. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a testimony at the, not the last forum, Genocide Prevention Forum, but the, mm -hmm. the other one, I guess, and then uh, also 2016, uh, no, 2017, uh, from this activist that, mm -hmm. now I think she lives in the US, but she had to escape in Baku and she was like 12, 12 years old and the neighbor started like going when, when the program started their neighbor the family neighbor uh, wanted to abuse her she had to run away families were killed it was a complicated situation wow. mm -hmm. uh, that died program programs from the 90s it was not something uh, uh, and the relation between Aliyev father and mm -hmm. uh, our own, I, I don't recall who was the one in charge of the Armenian government. It was during the Soviet period, of course. It was not such a bad situation. They, they, they had a dialogue and they were mm -hmm. in Because I recall that the metro inauguration uh, inside Yerevan, the Aliyev father was sitting uh, right next to the Armenian president. Uh, so they were not into that. Uh, although I truly believe that there was a, there must have been issues on coexistence during the Soviet time. It was not uh, so, but the situation was not so, so bad as, as today. Hmm. Yeah, so when the Western press talks about these ancient hatreds, right, when the Western press uses that colonial language for, uh, for this conflict, you know, it, what you're pointing out is it's so wrong. There's been mm -hmm. so many times in history where there has been peaceful coexistence, mm -hmm. um, even between yeah. the two kind of SSRs, right, the states within the Soviet Union. Uh, so there are models from the past that, that could pave the way mm -hmm. forward. Yes, exactly. Uh, the problem is, for example, that I recall from the the, the, what the Ombudsman uh, said to me during 2016, uh, that he said, Luciana, for example, the Armenian families, uh, they have like one or two uh, kids. And then we have the, the, the border, the Azerbaijani border. And I don't know whether the government pays the families because I don't recall, but they are, uh, so they are larger families and they have like nine kids mm. and mm. I don't know how education is being uh, uh, developed by the Azerbaijani government, but mm. what I know is that they are telling uh, that the Armenians are the enemy. 
it's like the hundred year ago uh, situation, genocidal situation. Armenian yeah. are dogs. Armenian are the enemy. Armenian yes. this. Armenian do that. It's ridiculous, and they have this on the history books, on on or on the textbooks that are teaching their kids right now during 21st century and it's insane but that's the way they maybe it works for them by the time the soldiers have the the prisoner and they okay kill them kill the dog do this because that's what you heard in the videos Mm -hmm. Uh, yes that's what they said Mm -hmm. and these horrible for our listeners they're these during the war, horrible videos of decapitations and humiliations of Armenian soldiers by Azeri soldiers, by Azerbaijani soldiers were circulated. Um, yeah. Yes, they refer to the, the Armenians as the dogs or the rats or that, that, mm-hmm. the, that is also so anti-Semitic because it's almost, it's like taken from the Banse conference. The completely, <laughs> completely. Language. Yes, yes. you think like the same pattern but i don't know how it it goes inside the mentality of their own population maybe they buy it they may buy it i don't know maybe they do things are very little you know in schools and then they it's embedded right i think that's the word maybe it's embedded in them as part Mm -hmm. of you know their education since they're young that could be it uh i don't know how anyone could take but we've seen it in other genocides right that completely in the against the Tutsis, yeah. is, it was the same, they called them cockroaches and people would buy that. Yeah. And um, so that dehumanization of, of the other, right? Um, the inferior yeah. other would be yes, so. We know it, comes a, it, it becomes mm-hmm. an essential element for yeah. the other one to say, okay, I'm not killing a person, or just to think I'm not killing yeah. a person. I don't know. Yeah, I always think, you know, when they were saying that ISIS was on drugs, remember that the, yeah. this news came out that they were saying they were consuming this drug. And I wonder if that is it, right? Like, how could you subject someone to so much pain without feeling anything? And I mentioned this to you, Elisa, I remember in a private conversation on Signal, I said that I'm always amused at how indifferent humans can be towards suffering right amazing so i thought maybe that yeah maybe they take drugs in order to be able to do the things they do german um, soldiers took drugs yeah they during did. world war ii mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then again you hear the victims because now that you were mentioned uh, isis i recall uh, another trip to armenia 2016 mm-hmm. and there was this girl, it was like the end of the conference, the Genocide Prevention mm-hmm. Conference, the forum, and there was this girl shouting from the stage. But mm-hmm. maybe I didn't I didn't hear the presentation, or maybe she was not properly introduced to, to the people. And she was like screaming and this and that. And then I took a look at the program, and then I read Nadia Murat Basse, and I said, the Yazidi girl. And I said, wow. Nadia and I couldn't believe that I was listening. All she was screaming, I, I totally it totally made sense to me like in in a in a second because I realized oh this is the girl from the Yazidi com- yeah. community and she's describing the horrors that she was suffering during the ISIS period when they were all kidnapped, they were all abused, they were all being 
under the, the worst cruelties one could ever imagine. And, and that's where you understand what, what uh, and I don't know whether these guys were on drugs or not, but the cruelty was there. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, let's hope with the trophy park, Aliyev went one step too far, finally. Um, Hopefully. You know, it's a a real embarrassment for all of the states that have supported him and, you know, the human rights organizations that have tried to be so even-handed. You know, he, he looks like a barbarian, really, right? He looks like a genocidaire. It's, he looks like Genghis Khan, right? Walking yes. over skulls. It's unbelievable. So let's hope there's a turning point. I remember when, um, when uh, and I always laugh about this, when, uh, when Al-Qaeda disavowed ISIS because ISIS was too extreme, right? Like, yeah. like oh, they're crazy. We can't be involved with them. Those ones, they're psychos. <laughs> And that was sort of the beginning of the end because ISIS became sort of hated by almost everyone, of course, except those countries that were supporting them secretly and that sort of thing, right? But but uh, maybe this will be the breaking point right, for yes, for this sort of unquestioning support. It would be great. Yes, you, it would went be a, a, a little step too far. <laughs> yes, it could be good. It could be good if this goes against him. And besides... He's, um, he, he made such a, a mistake because he was, uh, all, his, all his master plan was focused on Artsakh and I think he's building like three airports. I don't know what happened to our own airport. And he's doing the things that he needs to do in order to say, okay, this is Azerbaijani territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he lacks of any sense and he goes with this barbarian museum and okay maybe it's good for us okay this is what he's presenting to the world yeah yeah maybe hopefully let's hope in a sense and maybe he felt too powerful you know yeah. he felt impugned so that impunity impunity behavior right impunity yeah Yeah. so he felt like nothing could happen to him Mm -hmm. so i'm just gonna parade in this horrible exhibition Mm -hmm. yeah hopefully let's hope let's uh let's reconvene this conversation in a month and see where things are then it'll be interesting (laughs) right so let's plan for it um and we can yeah sort of update each other on (laughs) where things have gone since then luciana Thank you so much. We don't want to take any more, exploit any more of your time. We, we're exactly <laughs> at so one much. hour and 30 minutes, which is absolutely wonderful. This was so much fun. Thank you. Okay. It is fun and it's good. I think it's, it's, it's important to keep these conversations. Uh, I learn from you. I try to see from other points of view and try to see if I'm not mistaken myself by the way I think about the, the conflict. And okay. Thank you so much. You are so kind. Thank you for inviting me to your to your cafe. Cecilia, <laughs> <laughs> you're wonderful. And we look forward next, to having you back. <laughs> yes, we will. And hopefully maybe next podcast. Well, not next podcast, but maybe we'll do one from Yerevan. And we'll have real coffee then. Oh, that yes. sounds so fun. Armenian yes, coffee. We'll it's the best. Armenian coffee. It's mm-hmm. the yes. best. Thank you that so much. That would be lovely. 
Well, you guys have you guys stay safe, and to our listeners, stay safe. Thank you all for joining us. Let's all uh, say goodbye to Luciana. She will be back, however. And until then, we wish you all wonderful weeks ahead. Thank you again. This is the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, and we are signing off. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.